God, we are grateful that you, you are faithful, Lord. You've always proven yourself faithful to us. Time and time again, whether we recognize it or whether we doubted it, you've come through. And so, God, we pray for nothing less this morning. This is just an hour. This is just words if you don't show up. Uh, these are just songs if, if you're not here. And so we pray that, we, and we claim the promise of Jesus, that where two or three gather in his name, he's going to be there. And so we gather in the name of Jesus today, Lord, and we just pray that as we open your word, God, that you would move. Lord, if you need to do something with Colossians 1 different that has been prepared, do something different. If you need to, to put your finger on a sinful habit, do that. If you need to call us to change something or sacrifice something, give up something, do that. If there's somebody in here who does not know you, bring them to you today, God. And do it all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, a couple years ago, I was invited by some friends of mine to go to this little restaurant I'd never heard of. And so not knowing anything about it, I went with them. Uh, and I wasn't prepared for how good of an experience I was going to have. Uh, I was just, it, the whole thing amazed me. So I made sure to bring leftovers home to Corinne. And I just raved and raved about the meal and the evening and, and how great it was. And so I warmed her up the leftovers for her and I gave them to her. And she ate them. She told me they were really good, but I just didn't think she was sufficiently excited. I was like, you're not excited enough about this, right? So I got invited to go back and I went back. And this time I picked out the very best leftovers. Right? I mean, I created a masterpiece, right? And I brought them home and I warmed them up for her. And again, she... Said they were good, but nothing to the level that I expected. So this last month was her birthday. Um, her birthday came, and so I decided to arrange a dinner at that same place. And this time, she's going with me. All right, so no leftovers, no warming it back up. She was going to experience the whole thing. She was going to smell the aroma coming from the kitchen. She was going to see how the food was presented in front of her. She was going to taste it just as it was meant to be tasted. And on the way home, she couldn't stop talking about how good it was. She was finally as excited as I had been, and who knew Burger King was that good, right? And that's when I realized that no matter how good they are, leftovers aren't the same. Leftovers are never the same as the real deal. You can't ever fool someone into thinking that leftovers are the same as experiencing it in the moment. Yet somehow you and I convince ourselves that we can fool God with this. Right? That somehow I can give to God what I have left over, but I can dress it up and present it in a way that he should not only accept it, but be pretty impressed with it. Now we're going through the book of Colossians of the church. This is our third weekend. And last week we covered this really powerful section in Colossians 1 that simply elevated Jesus above everything else out there. This section of Colossians tells us that, that Jesus is the supreme ruler of all creation. That by him and for him, every single thing has been made. It tells us that Jesus holds, by his power, he's holding all things together. That he's first and preeminent over everything. That Jesus, this supreme King Jesus, is the one that we've all rebelled against. And instead of destroying us or wiping us out, he came instead to rescue us. And by reconciling us back to God, by dying on the cross in our place. So that now if we surrender to him, he presents us before God the Father as holy and perfect and free from accusation. And Paul, in writing to this church in Colossus, will immediately follow that section by attacking this notion that Jesus, who did that for us, should be giving anything less than our best in response. So look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, it's an interesting verse. Okay, Colossians 1, 24 says this. Now I rejoice in what I suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
So Paul opens this section by talking about what he has actually personally suffered. And he mentions that he rejoices in what was suffered on their behalf. That, at, that, he, that what he has poured out on behalf of the gospel is worth it to him. It's so worth it that he celebrates his suffering. He rejoices in his suffering. And man, to celebrate your own suffering, rejoice in your own suffering, would require you to believe that there's some amazing purpose and reason for it. And Paul tells us what that is. He says that he is filling up in his own flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction and suffering. And I'm going to be super honest and overt with you this morning. There's a word in that sentence that I really don't like. I really don't like the idea that someone or that something would still be lacking when it comes to the suffering of Jesus. And so what I did was I, I did the whole Bible college graduate, right? I did the whole word study. I looked up the Greek. I checked every single time that this Greek word is used in the New Testament, all hoping to be able to stand before you today and tell you that he really didn't mean the word lacking. That's just a poor English translation, but that's not what I found. It's a perfect word. Paul states that he rejoices in his own sufferings because he's carrying on the sufferings of Christ, filling up what is lacking in them. So before we move on from that, we must understand what he's saying. We must understand that this is why it's so incredibly important to interpret Scripture with other Scripture and within its own context. Because if you just pulled out that one sentence by itself, you could come to the conclusion that Jesus' death on the cross isn't enough suffering for your sins. That somehow you and I, we must continue to suffer to fill up what is lacking in that suffering. And not only is that not what this verse is saying, that's a terrible misrepresentation of the entire New Testament and it could impact your eternity. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Hebrews chapter 7, calling Jesus our high priest, says, Unlike other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of other people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 10 says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In fact, you don't even need to look at those places. Look up two verses in Colossians 1. Colossians 1.22, and Paul writes that, that God has reconciled you by Jesus' physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Listen, we must understand the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection are completely sufficient to completely pay the price for the sins of anyone in this world who turned to him and they would be sufficient to pay the price for the sins of endless worlds. In fact, if you read the New Testament, God shows us that he rejects any faith that adds to the work of Christ for salvation just as strongly as he rejects having no faith at all. That if you take the posture that what Jesus did for you on the cross is good, but now I have to do this and this and this on top of it to be saved, the New Testament says you're not saved because your faith is not in Jesus and Jesus alone. Which is why I'm making sure we understand what Paul is saying in this verse. It's why when you come here, we're not sacrificing animals. Right? It's why when you come here, we're not, we're not having you confess your sins to another human being to obtain forgiveness. Because we have a high priest in Jesus who suffered once for sins for all time. And all of our faith and all of our salvation and all of our hope and all of our forgiveness is found in him and him alone. Okay, so what is Paul saying here then? Paul's not suffering to make up for what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for sin. He says he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So Paul's not suffering for your sins or his. He's suffering for the body of Christ, which is the church. 
He's suffering for the church's mission. He's suffering for the church's sanctification. He's suffering so that the gospel might continue. He's suffering so the church can increase and multiply. And this gives him such purpose that he rejoices in the things that he has suffered. Because there's no greater purpose for Paul than to pour out his life for Jesus in the church. Because when it comes to suffering for the church, that work's not done yet. It's not done. The church is not home. The kingdom of God, though it began with Jesus, the right of Jesus, is not yet fully realized. So the suffering to pay the price for sin ended completely and triumphantly in Jesus Christ. The suffering necessary to build his church and spread his gospel continues to this very moment. And Paul said, I found joy in inserting myself into that. I found joy in taking part of it. And look how he continues in verse 25. He writes, I have become its servant. He's talking about the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul says, I've become a servant of this church of Jesus by God's commission. He told me to. Now we saw that when we went through Acts, didn't we? And as a servant of the church, his job is this. He is to present the word of God in its fullness. That's a, that's a huge phrase. Because I'm going to fill you in on something here. If you found nothing in the Bible that you don't like, you haven't read the Bible. The Bible is the revelation of God to us. It's God telling us who he is and how we should live in response to that. And man, there's stuff in this book that I would have certainly left out had I written it. There's stuff I just wish wasn't in there. But that's what gives it credence. I didn't write it, right? Because it's the word of God. And if God is eternal and holy and awesome and perfect, and I'm none of those things, then there will be things that he reveals that I don't like. But I'm still expected to obey them by faith. And Paul suffered. He suffered immensely in his life because he told people the fullness of the word. He told people what they needed to hear, what God had, the fullness of what God had revealed. And man, his life would have been a lot easier had he just sugarcoated things. His story went a lot smoother. He just left things out or not told the whole story. But that wasn't what he was called to do. He was called to reveal the fullness of God and the mystery of what God had done in Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, Paul uses that word mystery. And to understand what he's talking about there, we must put ourselves in his shoes. For instance, if you're here and you grew up in church at all, okay, then there are certain truths that are very familiar to you. They're not mysterious at all. That Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You've heard that 10,000 times. That anyone, regardless of who they are, can be forgiven and belong to him. They just give their lives to him. That when we surrender our lives to him, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence inside of us. If you grew up in church, you've heard those over and over and over and over again. You know all those. But the original apostles, those first church leaders, people like Paul, these ideas were mysterious. They were groundbreaking. They're world-shattering truth. Because for all of their life, they had grown up in Judaism, where you must continually, over and over and over again, offer sacrifices for your sins to be forgiven. Judaism, where the Jews were God's chosen and special people, the only ones who could receive the fullness of God's favor. And in Judaism, only God's spirit could only be contained in the temple in Jerusalem. And so what Paul now knows is that God chose the Israelites. He rose up a nation. He gave them a law all to point to Jesus. Also that when the time was right, he would give Jesus to the world and Jesus would fulfill and change everything. And Paul tells this church, man, I've been charged with sharing this great mystery. 
This mystery that Jesus came for all. This mystery that he died for all. This mystery that he grants forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. And the spirit actually takes up residence inside of them. It's not in the temple anymore. And even if this isn't new to you, even if you were brought up in church, you've heard that a hundred times. Don't let the familiarity of this rob you of the mystery. The Bible says that you were an active enemy of God. That by your sins you had the wrath of God stored up on you and waited to be unleashed on you. Psalm 8 says that God shouldn't even waste a single thought on you. Yet I'm told he loves me. And he came for me and he died for me and he created and formed and placed me and he draws me to himself and he comes and lives in me and and he grants me eternal life with him what could ever get more wondrous than that what could ever get more amazing and more mysterious than the love that God has for us which is the motivation for what Paul writes in verse 28 when he says we proclaim him we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Since this is true, since God gave the world Jesus, since Jesus did what we could not do, since he paid our price, since he now lives in us, we proclaim him, Paul says. And I want to make a commitment to you this morning. That as long as we are here, and by we I mean uh, myself, uh, the current staff, and the board of deacons that we have, as long as God permits us to be here, we will proclaim him. I'm going to promise you today, we will never proclaim this place to you. We'll never proclaim First Baptist North to you. We're not going to point you to us. We're not going to point you to finding any kind of hope or identity or purpose in us. We're nobody. But we'll tell you about somebody. We will proclaim Jesus. We exist to point you to him. We exist to get you more of him. We are here to make much of him. And so as long as God has us here, that's not going to change. Because our heart for you, our passion for you, our love for you drives us to present you as perfect in Christ. The last thing that we want is for you to come here and miss him. To think that somehow just by being here, just by attending here, that you're good with God. Think that somehow just by putting on some sort of outer veneer or dressing nice or having good church attendance or, or not looking worldly or that would be some sort of acceptable substitute for not surrendering your heart fully to Jesus. To miss Jesus because he was clouded out by tradition or religion or a church is one of our great fears for you. So we proclaim him. Jesus is your hope. He is your answer. He is your need. He is your salvation. He is your forgiveness. He is your way. He is your truth. He is your life. He and he alone can save your soul and present you as perfect in him before God. Do not ever be so distracted by us that you miss him. It's all about him. Which leads to verse 29. When Paul says, to this end I labor. To this end I labor struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works through me. To this end, Paul says, to this end of proclaiming Christ, to this end of sharing this great mystery, to the end of telling the world the gospel, to the end of presenting people perfect in Christ. For that mission and for that goal and for that life purpose, Paul says he labors. He's not coasting, he's laboring. He struggles with all the energy that he can get in and from Christ. And it's in reading these passages, passages like this, that I begin to realize how rare it is, really, to find people like Paul, especially in American Christianity. How rare it is to find people who say, not only do I suffer, but man, I enjoy it. Because I get to advance the church when I do so. Right, to find a, a follower of Christ who would honestly claim that, they, you know what, I labored and struggled for him this week. 
Because it's at this point that we try and dismiss this and justify it. Well, we live in a free country, right? So what are we, what are we supposed to suffer? How, how does God want more from me? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible answers that throughout. Way back at the start in Genesis 4. At the very beginning, we're told of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. And in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel both bring an offering to God. And Abel, this first son, he brought some of his best portions of his best livestock to God. He set his very best before God with an attitude that said, God, I'm trusting you by freely giving you the best of what I have. I'm not going to keep this for myself. I'm going to trust you with it knowing that you're going to take care of me. Well, Cain looked around at what he had. And when he saw all his best stuff, he thought, man, man I kind of need that. I, I worked hard for that. I, I got plans and ideas and dreams for that. So he went and grabbed a portion of his crops. Not terrible things, nice things, but not anything that he cared deeply about or anything that he needed. And he laid those before the Lord. The Bible tells us that God looked on Abel with favor. And God accepted Abel's offering, but he did not do so to Cain. He rejected his offering. Mark chapter 12, Jesus all of a sudden takes a seat in a really strange place. We're told in Mark that Jesus sat down across from the area by the temple where people put their offerings in. And he just plopped down there. He sat there for a while. And we're told that he sat there and observed these wealthy people come in, giving these large amounts. We know from uh, tradition and scripture that often these gifts were given in a very public display. Right, so these guys are coming in, making it look real good, making a display of it. Like, I don't know if you all see what I'm giving here, but it's a lot. Check this out, right? They're all dressed nice. It all looks good. It's a wealthy amount. The temple can use all of it. And then we're told that a widow comes in. Most likely she sneaks in from the side. And she drops in two small copper coins. The value of both of them is less than one penny. She leaves. No fanfare, no outer display, no noise, calls no attention to herself. And Jesus calls his disciples over to him and says, guys, I got something to tell you. That poor widow that nobody noticed, that widow that gave less than a penny, here's what I say. She gave more than everyone else has given. Because all the rest they've given out of their wealth, all the rest they gave what they had left after they had all they wanted. All the rest gave what didn't hurt them in the slightest. All the rest gave what really cost them nothing. She gave everything she had. She put it all in. Now, a lot of times, people take these passages and just make them about money. Please don't do that. Number one, that's what, people, that's what TV preachers do. And they do it to take advantage of people and rob them of their money. And they're going to stand before God one day for that wickedness. Number two, this, this has ramifications far beyond money. Is there an application in your life that could involve your finances? Sure, but it's so much more than that. You see, when God gave the children of Israel his law, he set up this system of sacrifices and offerings. And there was a word that keeps being repeated in the Old Testament again and again. And, and that, that phrase is first fruits. Bring in your first fruits, he said. Now, we don't talk like that, okay? So here's what this means. Bring your first, bring your very best to God. That when you give something to God, when you serve him, when you give, you give him the first and you give him the best. Jesus picked up on this in Matthew 6 when he said that your job is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. That verse has been quoted by more people who aren't actually obeying it than probably any verse in the Bible. But Jesus says in that verse, what gets priority, what gets your first attention, your first effort and your first focus, what gets your very best is building God's kingdom and becoming like him. And when you do that, there's going to be a trickle down effect. 
That once you have that priority in place, right, God is going to cover all the rest for you. He's going to fill in all the details. He's going to provide for your family. He's going to take care of your career. He's going to work out your schedule encounters. He's got you. He's got your back. And Paul understood this. 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, I am what I am because of the grace of God. I had nothing to do with it. But then he keeps writing, he says, but that grace was not without effect on me because I have worked harder than all the rest. Colossians 1, he writes, I labor and I struggle with all the energy that he gives me. And what we do when we come up against these passages is that we like to lift up Paul as if he's somehow special and unique. Well, somehow God called Paul to a deeper level commitment than he's looking for from me. That somehow God expected more out of Paul than he calls and expects out of me. So we admire Paul. Man, we make a big deal out of him. We admire missionaries, right? We admire people who are sacrificing and pouring out their lives for the gospel. But we see them as superstars and not the norm. Because as long as we elevate them as superstars, that doesn't challenge me. That doesn't convict me. Well, I'm telling you today, go ahead and be challenged. I want you to go ahead and feel that conviction. I'm not going to take that from you. I'm not going to take it from me. I want us to be struck by it because there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that there are a few superstars that God expects more out of than he does the rest. Consider this. We're told in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who was fully God, the, the Jesus that we read about in Colossians 1 last week, was fully God, did not consider something, uh, equality with God, something to be grasped, and so he lowered himself. And he took on our form and became a man. And then he lowered himself even more, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, even that extreme suffering for the sake of others. But you want to know what precedes, what verse precedes that passage in the Bible? The line that comes before all of that with a colon at the end says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So that every follower of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, that is the attitude that you're called to, that you will go lower that you will actually endure cost, that you will sacrifice things, you will endure hurt willingly, obediently for the sake of Jesus and other people. And Jesus didn't hide from this. As the one who went to the cross, right, the one who endured the suffering for us, he calls to us with these two words, follow me, follow me down this path. Follow me in not protecting yourself or your possessions or your life. Follow me down this road of pouring yourself out for others. And if that wasn't clear enough, he came right out and said in Luke 9, if anybody wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So may I ask again the question that we asked when we opened up the book of Colossians. What in the world would make us believe that what God wants from me is to be ingrained into some kind of Christian culture? Why would I ever think that that's all he's looking for from me? Because what we can so easily do is to be ingrained into Christian culture, start acting like a Christian, but daily give God our leftovers. Once I'm done with everything that I want to do today, Lord, you get all the rest of the time. Once I'm done building this dream home, once I'm done with that retirement nest egg, once I've got the entertainment center I want, God, you got the rest. Do what you want with it. Once I'm done committing myself and my family to, to what we want to spend our time on and all these commitments that we've got, what we want to chase and do, God, you got the rest of my time. Have your way. You know, once I've gotten enough rest, once I've taken care of me, because God, I got to take care of me, right? Then I'll help somebody else as long as, you know, it's convenient for me. Yeah, God, I'll help that missionary. I'll adopt that child. I'll give to that cause as long as I can stay at the same exact level of comfort that I've grown accustomed to. 
As long as I stay near my family or in a place that I'm comfortable, feel safe, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. See, when we take these postures, we show that we completely misunderstand grace. This wonderful, mysterious concept of grace. Grace tells me that I cannot earn my salvation. Grace tells me that Jesus did all the work for me. Grace tells me that all I have to do is give my life to him and he pays all of my price. He does all the work. He grants me eternal life in heaven. He does all that. I can't do it. And all that is true and unspeakably awesome, but the New Testament argues, and logically so, that if that is true, then that should change our lives. If that is true, that is why we should seek first the kingdom of God. That's why Paul said that that grace had effect on him. It changed him. It caused him to pour out his life and give the be- his best to the God who gave his best for him. And man, we need to be thankful he did. Because this pattern has continued all the way to us. About 260 years after Paul writes this letter to Colossians. In 325 AD, the Nicene Council was held in the Roman city of Nicaea. Now, if you don't know church history, the basic idea, the thrust of this council was to gather all the Christian church leaders at the time and make sure there was a consensus among them about about the chief doctrines of the church. So at this council, they wrote the Nicene Creed, which is just like the Apostles' Creed. And that creed became a statement of unified belief in true doctrine. And so that each of their churches, they could know that Jesus they were proclaiming was the true Jesus that you and I read of in the Bible. But there's a really powerful detail about this gathering. There were 318 church leaders who gathered and formed the Nicene Council. Of the 318, 307 showed up with having lost an eye or a hand or with a permanent limp because they had been beaten and maimed for their faith in Jesus. 307 of the 318. What started with the persecution of the first church has continued to today. Countless, countless followers of Christ who fill up in their flesh what's still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for his church. Countless Christians who have come before us, who gave of their resources, gave of their possessions, gave physically, gave emotionally, gave all they had in order for the church to spread to the ends of the earth. All to build the kingdom of God, all to protect this word and make sure it's translated into every language possible. All to tell the world of the saving grace that can be found in Jesus. And we are all beneficiaries of their sacrifice. We are all beneficiaries of their suffering and their cause. I stand before you today knowing of the hope I found in Jesus. I know of the eternal life I've received in him because so many people who went before me sacrificed so that the good news of Jesus would eventually get to my ears and my life. And Jesus says in Luke 12, from everybody who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Which means that we simply cannot be the generation of believers who punt on this responsibility. call to follow Jesus on the path of lowering ourselves, the call to fill up in our flesh the suffering that is still required, required to spread the church, the call to have the same attitude as Jesus, the call to seek first the kingdom of God is one we simply cannot ignore. And if God is getting the portion of my life and the portion of my time and he's getting the portion of my possessions and resources that I have left over after I've done everything I want, then make no mistake about it, we are ignoring the call. And this is to our detriment. See, Jesus didn't just say in Luke 9 that we're to take up our cross. He said that those of us who try and save our lives, those of us who try to keep our lives, those who try to protect us and our stuff, we will lose everything. 
those of us who lose our lives for Jesus, those who are willing to give him anything, will find life. And I'm arguing this morning, he wasn't exaggerating or joking when he said that. Even here at the end of Colossians 1, you, you get to see a glimpse of it. At the end of verse 29, Paul says that he labors and he struggles, but when he, do, when he does so, Jesus works powerfully through him. This is a New Testament idea that when we humble ourselves, when we lower ourselves, when we endure costs for him, we actually get more of Jesus. And in that, we get a fulfillment, we get a joy, we get a peace that we could find nowhere else. And so the trick is this. The trick is simply to stop listening to ourselves. For us to deny ourselves and to lose our lives, for us to give up control, is to stop believing that what we want is actually what's best for us. And to start trusting that whatever God asks for is what will bring us joy. Listen, I know, right? I know we're not in Iran this morning. I know we're not in Iraq. I know we're not in Northern Africa. I know that no one's going to come in here and arrest you for being here today. But that's not what we're talking about. The principle remains the same. We're talking about giving God your best, not what's left over. So that whenever he asks you for something, you make it happen. When he gives you a chance to build his kingdom, you make it happen. When he gives you a day to live and breath in your lungs, you use that day seeking him first in it. And he may, no, he will. He will bring opportunities along your way in this life that will cause you to give up something for him. That you might actually need to give up a convenience or luxury to do it. That you would actually might have to consider downsizing your home or car. That you would actually need to give up a hobby or commitment to have the time to serve him. That you would actually have to be inconvenienced to serve Christ. You might actually have to surrender a dream or goal for one he has for you. And when we come to these crossroads, it would help us to remember three things. Number one, others have paid that price so that you could know Jesus. Number two, we are told in the Bible that God wants our first and our best. And number three, we're told in the Bible there's nothing less than our first and our best that he'll accept. So here in a couple minutes, we're going to take communion this morning. Okay, this meal that reminds us that God gave us his first. God gave us his best in giving us his son Jesus to die for us. Before we do that, before we tell you how we're going to do that today, Grace is going to sing a song for us. And this is not for us to sing along. Okay, this will simply be a time for you just to spend with God. Just a time for you to respond to his word this morning. And as we do, there's a couple things I really want you to seek him on. There's a couple questions I want you to ask him this morning. And the first one is this. God, have I been giving you my leftovers? Have I been giving you what is left of my time? Have I been giving you what is left of my life? Have I been giving you what is left of my strength? Have I been giving you what is left of my energy? Have I been giving you what is left of my resources? Have I just been giving you whatever is left after I do what I want? And if that's the case, then you repent of that this morning. You ask for forgiveness for that. And then the second, the second question is, ask him for one step today because you can't you can't change this all your entire life in one day ask for just one step to start your journey of giving him your best and your first ask him for one single step that you can commit to take today lord is it giving up some expense that you don't really need is it supporting a child through a group like Compassion or Mountaintop Ministries? Is it, is it deciding that you're going to foster or adopt? Is it, is it supporting a, fam- a missionary? Is you as a family as a couple? Is it serving a neighbor of yours? Is it showing love and grace to someone who's always just rubbed you the wrong way? 
Asking for one step. What, how is it that you can today lay down your kingdom and lay down your wants and lay down your dreams and lay down your possessions and your time and your money and say to God, you get the first. You get the first. You get the best. You get, you get first say. You get whatever you want because, Lord, you gave everything for me. So we're going to pray and then we invite you just to spend some time with him. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you gave your first, you gave your best for us. And you sent Jesus to die in our place. Father, forgive us for how we've been handing you what's left. Forgive me, Lord, for giving you the portions of my time and my life that I have left for you. May around this room, God, we repent of that. And that God, only you, only you can take such a big idea and make it really specific this morning. So I pray that you'll do that in this room now. That as these individuals, as these men and women seek you, they seek your input, seek your will, that you would put their, point their mind to something, put your finger on one step they can take today. That'll be the first step of the claim for the rest of my life. You get the first, God. You get the best. And then, Lord, immediately we're going to try to talk ourselves out of it. Immediately we're going to say, that's, that's too much. Immediately we're going to feel like, no, no, that's, that's going to be too much cost. God, help us to be faithful. Help us to obey what you ask us to do. I invite you just to have your way in this time. Just give you this, we give you this time, give you our first, our best attention now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.